Chapter Twenty Nine of the Seven Secrets by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Nine. The police are at fault. Ambler Jevons read the letter, then handed it to me without comment. It was written upon the notepaper I knew so well, stamped with the neat address Nenaford in black, but bearing no date. What I read was as follows. Sir, I failed to comprehend the meaning of your words when you followed me into the train at Huntington last night. I am in no fear of any catastrophe. Therefore I can only take your offer of assistance as an attempt to obtain money from me. If you presume to address me again, I shall have no other course than to acquaint the police. Yours truly, Mary Courtney. Ah! I exclaimed. Then he warned her, and she misunderstood his intention. Without a doubt, said Ambler, taking the letter from my hand. This was written probably only a few days before her death. That man, and he glanced at the prostrate body, was the only one who could give us the clue by which to unravel the mystery. But the dead man's lips had closed, and his secret was held forever. Only those letters remained to connect him with the river tragedy or rather to show that he had communicated with the unfortunate Mrs. Courtney. In company we walked to Lehman Street Police Station, one of the chief centers of the Metropolitan Police in the East End, and there, in an upper office, Ambler had a long consultation with the sergeant of the Criminal Investigation Department. I described the appearance of the body and stated my suspicions of poisoning, all of which the detective carefully noted before going forth to make his own examination. My address was taken so that I might assist at the post-mortem, and then shortly after midnight I drove back westward through the city with Ambler at my side. He spoke little, and when in Oxford Street, just at the corner of Newman Street, he descended, wished me a hurried good night, and disappeared into the darkness. He was often given to strange vagaries of erratic movement. It was as though some thought had suddenly occurred to him, and he acted at once upon it. That night I scarcely closed my eyes. My brain was a whirl with thought of all the curious events of the past few months, the inexplicable presence of old Mr. Courtney, and the subsequent death of Mary, and of the only man who, according to Ambler, knew the remarkable secret. Ethelwyn's strange words worried me. What could she mean? What did she know? Surely hers could not be a guilty conscience, yet in her words and actions I had detected that cowardice which a heavy conscience always engenders. One by one I dissected and analyzed the seven secrets, but not in one single instance could I obtain a gleam of the truth. While at the hospital next day, I was served with a notice to assist at the post-mortem of the unfortunate Lane, whose body was lying in the Shadwell mortuary, and that same afternoon I met by appointment Dr. Tatham of the London Hospital, who, as is well known, is an expert toxicologist. To describe in technical detail the examination we made would not interest the general reader of this strange narrative. The average man or woman knows nothing or cares less for the duodenum or the pylorus, therefore it is not my intention to go into long and wearying detail. Suffice it to say that we preserved certain portions of the body for subsequent examination, and together were engaged the whole evening in the laboratory of the hospital. 
Chatham was well skilled in the minutiae of the test. The exact determination of the cause of death in cases of poisoning always depends partly on the symptoms noted before death and partly on the appearances found after death. Regarding the former, neither of us knew anything, hence our difficulties were greatly increased. The object of the analyst is to obtain the substances which he has to examine chemically in as pure a condition as possible so that there may be no doubt about the results of his test. Also, of course, to separate active substances from those that are inert, all being mixed together in the stomach and alimentary canal. Again, in dealing with such fluids as the blood or the tissues of the body, their natural constituents must be got rid of before the foreign and poisonous body can be reached. There is this difficulty further to contend with, that some of the most poisonous of substances are of unstable composition and are readily altered by chemical reagents. To this group belong many vegetable and most animal poisons. These, therefore, must be treated differently from the more stable inorganic compounds. With an inorganic poison we may destroy all organic materials mixed with it, trusting to find the poisons still recognizable after this process. Not so with an organic substance. That must be separated by other than destructive means. Through the whole evening we tested for the various groups of poisons, corrosives, simple irritants, specific irritants, and neurotics. It was a long and scientific search. Some of the tests with which I was not acquainted I watched with the keenest interest, for of all the medical men in London Tatum was the most up-to-date in such analyses. At length, after much work with acids, filtration, and distillation, we determined that a neurotic had been employed, and that its action on the vasomotor system of the nerves was very similar, if not identical, with nitrate of amyl. Further than that, even Tatum, expert in such matters, could not proceed. Hours of hard work resulted in that conclusion, and with it we were compelled to be satisfied. In due course the inquest was held at Shadwell, and with Ambler I attended as a witness. The reporters, of course, expected a sensation, but, on the contrary, our evidence went to show that, as the poisonous substance was found in the quartern bottle on the deceased table, death was, in all probability, due to suicide. Some members of the jury took an opposite view. Then the letters we had found concealed were produced by the police, and of course created a certain amount of interest. But to the readers of newspapers the poisoning of a costermonger at Shadwell is of little interest as compared with the similar catastrophe in that quarter of London vaguely known as the West End. The letters were suspicious, and both coroner and jury accepted them as evidence that Lane was engaged upon an elaborate scheme of blackmail. "'Who is this Mary Courtney who writes to him from Neneford?' inquired the coroner of the inspector. "'Well, sir,' the latter responded, "'the writer herself is dead. She was found drowned a few days ago near her home under suspicious circumstances.' Then the reporters commenced to realize that something extraordinary was underlying the inquiry. Ah, remarked the coroner, one of the most acute officials of his class. Then, in face of this, her letter seems to be more than curious. For aught we know the tragedy at Neneford may have been willful murder, and we have now the suicide of the assassin? That, sir, is the police theory, replied the inspector. 
"'Police theory be hanged!' ejaculated Ambler, almost loud enough to be heard. "'The police know nothing of the case and will never learn anything. "'If the jury are content to accept such an explanation "'and brand poor Lane as a murderer, they must be allowed to do so.' "'I knew Jevons held coroner's juries in the most supreme contempt, "'sometimes rather unreasonably so,' I thought. "'Well,' the coroner said, "'this is certainly remarkable evidence.' and he turned the dead woman's letter over in his hand. It is quite plain that the deceased approached the lady ostensibly to give her warning of some danger, but really to blackmail her, for what reason does not at present appear. He may have feared her threat to give information to the police, hence his crime and subsequent suicide. Listen, exclaimed Jevons in my ear, they are actually trying the dead man for a crime he could not possibly have committed. They've got hold of the wrong end of the stick, as usual. Why don't they give a verdict of suicide and have done with it? We can't afford to waste a whole day explaining theories to a set of uneducated gentlemen of the Whitechapel Road. The English law is utterly ridiculous where coroner's juries are concerned. The coroner heard his whispering and looked towards us severely. We have not had sufficient time to investigate the whole of the facts connected with Mrs. Courtney's mysterious death the inspector went on. You will probably recollect, sir, a mystery down at Kew some little time ago. It was fully reported in the papers and created considerable sensation. An old gentleman was murdered under remarkable circumstances. Well, sir, the gentleman in question was Mrs. Courtney's husband. The coroner sat back in his chair and stared at the officer who had spoken, while in the court a great sensation was caused. Mention of the Q mystery brought its details vividly back to the minds of everyone. Yes, after all, the death of that poor costermonger, Lanky Lane, was of greater public interest than the representatives of the press anticipated. "'Are you quite certain of this?' the coroner queried. "'Yes, sir. I am here by the direction of the Chief Inspector of Scotland Yard to give evidence. I was engaged upon the case at Kew, and have also made inquiries into the mystery at Meniford.' then you have suspicion that the deceased was well a person of bad character we have fools growled ambler lane was a policeman's nose and often obtained payment from scotland yard for information regarding the doings of a certain gang of thieves and yet they actually declare him to be a bad character preposterous do you apply for an adjournment no sir we anticipate the verdict will be suicide the only one possible in the face of the evidence. And then, as though the jury were compelled to act upon the inspector's suggestion, they returned a simple verdict, that the deceased committed suicide by poisoning while of unsound mind. End of chapter 29. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.